everybody. We are going to go ahead and jump on in. Today, we have a ton of ground to cover. We're obviously coming up on our uh, last couple of weeks. This is week 11. Next week's going to be our, our last week. Ken's going to finish out with doing the last two chapters. But today, we basically have three chapters to cover and a lot of ground. So we're going to Go ahead and jump on in. If you all want to turn to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 46, uh, kind of about halfway through, and then we're going to go all the way through chapter 48 today. So y'all turn there, and I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Father, thank you for today and for bringing us here this morning. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for every man that's in this room uh, today, uh, and God, for those, those watching online. Lord, I just pray that as we open up your word, that you would ready our hearts and our minds and our ears for what it is that you have to say. I'm not me, but what you have to say through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would see that you are faithful to your promises, uh, even if those um, promises are fulfilled in ways that we would uh, not necessarily expect. But God, I pray that, that we would be able to see that and put our hope, our trust, and our faith in those things. Um, and Lord, that we would uh, allow that to to just give us the confidence that we need to leave this room um, and to go forth and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Lord, be with us this morning um, as, we, as we jump into your word. In your name I pray, amen. Alrighty, so like I said, obviously a ton of ground to cover today. We're gonna be in Genesis 46, starting specifically in verse 28 and go all the way through Genesis 48. Today, we're calling this lesson the fruitfulness of the land, and that's important because we're going to focus on how God really fulfills a promise that he's made to his people all the way back when we met Abraham last semester, and he fulfills this promise to, for, to bring Israel uh, into a bunch of fruitfulness in Egypt, which would be totally unexpected as we would read through Genesis, as we would read through the promises, we would expect that all of this would be fulfilled in the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. Yet we'll see today that God actually fulfills his promises in a way that we wouldn't necessarily expect. So for Jacob and his family, they're going to be leaving Canaan and they're going into Egypt. Remember, they've, uh, he's going to be reunited with Joseph um, but they're going to be in a different land. It's in a land that they're not used to, a land that they uh, really have only been to once or so when they were trying to get uh, grain, or a couple times when they were trying to get uh, grain because of this great famine. But the same promise remains. The same promise that Abraham was given, the same promise that Isaac was given, is the same promise that Jacob's going to give, uh, or is Jacob's given, and we'll see him pass this on to the next generation. And so, it's in a different place. We're no longer in the land of Canaan. They're leaving that and they're going into Egypt, but the same promise remains. We see that this promise all the way back in Genesis 12, as God is calling Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So we're told uh, Abraham is promised land. And then again, in Genesis 17, it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. This, this is going to be important for us today because we're going to focus a lot on how God makes the Israelites fruitful in a very unexpected way in a land that they're not used to, um, especially in a place where their jobs as shepherds would be seen as somewhat of, or really it's described in Genesis as an abomination. So everything looks stacked against them 
yet God continues to fill his promises, especially in an unexpected way. So land to be made exceedingly fruitful. And then in Genesis 17, verse eight, it says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So not only has he promised land, he's promised a specific land. He's promised the, the land of Canaan, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, they all would have known this. They would have known that, okay, this land that we've been sojourning in for a while, this is going to be the land that God gives us. God has told us specifically, this will be ours. This will be our everlasting possession. And this is where we're going to end up. Yet, as we pick up in Genesis 46, we're going to see that they're leaving that land and they're heading into Egypt. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all knew that ultimately, as or Jacob specifically, as him and his family are heading into Egypt, that that's not where they're going to end up. They know that their home is in Canaan, and they will eventually get back there. But what they didn't realize is that Egypt, specifically the land of Goshen, which is what Pharaoh gives them, is going to be the place of their fruitfulness, not the land of Canaan. We know this because look at what God has told Jacob years before. He says, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your body. Now we have the, uh, we have the uh, ability to look at this book as a whole, right? And whereas Jacob and his family, they were living it out in the moment. So it's easier for us to realize these things. But the promise has been made to Jacob and his family that they are going to be made fruitful and they're going to multiply greatly. And again, I think it's very easy for us to read these passages, especially now knowing the story and still think, okay, this is all going to happen in the land of Canaan. Yet we're going to see God makes them exceedingly fruitful in the land of Egypt, specifically the land of Goshen. In Genesis 35, it says, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So this is again promising, hey, the land of Canaan will be yours eventually. This is where we're going to end up. We know that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they never set foot in that land, they have enough faith, trust, and hope in God that he will fulfill that promise. That's going to be one of the main things that we talk about today is that God is faithful to his promises. I think time and time again, all throughout Genesis, that's something that we've seen is God is again and again and again faithful to his promises, and he fulfills them, as we'll see today, in ways that we might not necessarily expect, yet we can put our trust in the Lord because he has fulfilled all of these promises. He has not failed them yet. So he knows that eventually they're going to end up in Canaan. Eventually they're going to be in the promised land, but first they're going to occupy a different land. It's going to be a foreign land. Uh, a place where if we read Genesis all the way through Exodus, that it's going to be a place where they suffer. I mean, even it was promised to them that, hey, your descendants will suffer, be oppressed in a foreign land for 400 years. So this is a place where they would suffer, but they would also prosper. I mean, we saw in Genesis 45, Pharaoh say, give your family the best of the land. Give them everything that we have. I mean, the best that Egypt has to offer that's going to be theirs. And so we see God providing for his people and then prospering. But as we continue into the book of Exodus, we'll actually see that they're also going to suffer there. 
but this is all according to God's will. This is all according to his plan. Look at what he says all the way back in Genesis 15. Remember, right now, we're in Genesis 46. So this is going back to last semester, the beginning of the book. God says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, speaking specifically of Egypt here, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I mean, this was, this was predicted. This was promised. They, they should have known, they would have known that as they're entering into this land, that there's going to be a time where God's people are in a foreign land and they're afflicted for 400 years. Yet the promise of God is, I will bring judgment upon that nation. And then as you leave, you will come out with great possessions. That judgment, we can look in the book of Exodus and see the plagues that everything, and everything that God brought on Egypt as they were leaving And then as they come out, they're coming out with great possessions. So this would have been in the mind of Jacob as he's entering into Goshen, as he's entering into the land of Egypt, knowing that, okay, I'm probably never going back to the land of Canaan. uh, Jacob was pretty old at this point, and he realizes, while I might not ever see the land of Canaan, the promised land, as our possession, I'm going to see God fulfilling his promises around me and trust that he's going to continue to do that. So we pick up today in Genesis 46 with Jacob and his whole family. They've, they've packed everything up. Pharaoh has sent wagons and chariots and says, hey, take everything that you have, bring it, bring it to Egypt. They're on their way to Egypt and we see kind of the old Jacob appear. <coughs> Excuse me. And what we see what we see is Jacob is really kind of starting to believe like, okay, this might, this might be too good to be true. I mean, a lot is happening and we see his old ways appear up because he sends Judah ahead. If you remember uh, back last semester when we were talking about, or the beginning of the semester into last semester, we were talking about Jacob and his whole life. He really kind of it was always at odds. I mean, he came out of the womb at odds, right? Fighting with his brother. Then he, he leaves and, and uh, deceives his father for the blessing and then goes and everything with Laban happens. But then when he's on his way back to meet Esau again, instead of him going himself, he sends a servant ahead and says, hey, make sure this guy isn't gonna like kill me or something. I wanna make sure that I'm safe. And we see kind of the same thing here. He sends his son Judah to go to Joseph to say, hey, Where do we need to go? What's going on? What's the plan? So in verse 28, it says, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. So Joseph is obviously very excited. He's about to be reunited with his father who he hasn't seen in over 20 years, but they're entering into the land of Goshen. Now don't get confused. This is a map of Egypt and I know it says lower Egypt, but it's, Northeast Egypt, but this is just what it was called. Trust me on that. But they're entering into the land of Egypt. They're leaving what would have been the promised land, yet this is part of God's plan. God is, is his will isn't necessarily everything that we expect at all the time. God knows exactly what he's doing and God's plan is perfect. So he brings them out of the promised land and puts them into the land of Goshen, which is an incredibly fertile place. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at a map of North Africa, but there's a lot of brown because it's very hot. The, the climate is not exactly what you would necessarily want. But look at this. This one spot of Northeast Egypt is nothing but green. This is an incredibly fertile place. You've got the, the, uh, all of these rivers running through. You can see where for people who were shepherds, this is ideal. Like this would be, especially during a time where there's a massive famine, this would be the place where you would want to go. So it's a place of great fertility and it's going to be the place of their fruitfulness. Of all of the places around them, this, this one place is an incredibly fertile place and God brings them out of the land of Canaan during a massive famine to this one place to not only preserve them, but as we'll see through Genesis, to make them incredibly fruitful and to multiply them greatly. And look at what they're leaving the promised land with. At the end of chapter, or really the end of last week's lesson, during the middle of chapter 46, it says, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So they leave the land of Canaan. They leave the, the, the promised land uh, or what would eventually be the promised land. They come into Egypt with only 70 people, which by all accounts, compared to what they, we opened the book of Exodus with and what they became, God obviously made them incredibly fruitful and multiplied them greatly. I think by most conservative estimates, the, the Israelites in the book of Exodus was somewhere between like one to two million people. So going from 70 to that is obviously a huge jump. In a way, we see God fulfilling his promise, except he's doing it in Egypt rather than in Canaan. So we have Joseph and his, his Joseph and Judah are on their way to meet up with Jacob. Now remember, this is a time where Joseph hadn't seen his father in over 20 years. Jacob thought Joseph was dead. He thought he'd never see his son again. It says, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, and Goshen. He presented himself, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept and wept on his neck for a good while. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, just imagine the, the raw emotion. Jacob is incredibly old at this point. I mean, by the end of Genesis, I think he is somewhere around 140 years old. And so he's obviously very, very old. He'd lived the last 22 years thinking that he would never see his son again. His youngest son, his favorite son, he thought was killed. He thought had, had, it was no longer alive. And in this moment, he's standing face to face with that son. And so the Bible says that they wept and they wept for a while. But for me, I'm like, man, that's a massive understatement. I would be, you know, uncontrollably sobbing. I'd be on the floor. I mean, this is an incredibly emotional scene. And Jacob eventually goes on to say, I'm at peace now. He says, I, I can die at, with peace knowing that I have now been reunited with my son who I'd never thought I would see again. And Joseph continuing to be the, the family member who is providing for them, caring for them, doing the job that God had called him to do all the way back from when he was living with his family to now the job calling him to Egypt for this. He's preparing his family to live in Egypt. He basically says, look, I 
know how Pharaoh operates. I know what you are going to need to live here. And so he's going to do what he can to provide for them. He tells them in verse 33, when Pharaoh calls upon you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And he says, you need to say this so that Pharaoh will say, okay, the land of Goshen, that's where you're going to be. That's where you need to go. This is the job that you're doing. This is a perfect place for you to do this. So in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You can can see here that um, in a way, this, this idea that the Egyptians don't look highly on shepherds so that they would send them to the land of Goshen that would be somewhat out of the way. They wouldn't be necessarily messed with, but it's a very fertile land. And so this is obviously perfect for um, shepherds. This is the Lord really preparing the way to fulfill his promise. He's basically setting the groundwork through Joseph and through Pharaoh to fulfill this promise to make Israel, his people, fruitful in Egypt. So exactly what Joseph says would happen is exactly what happens. Pharaoh is or Joseph brings some of his brothers before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, what is your occupation? They tell him that we're, we're shepherds. And look at what Pharaoh says to Joseph. He says, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God, during a massive famine, has provided his people with the best land possible in that moment. And Pharaoh is just overjoyed. This is something that we've kind of seen him uh, react to previously in Genesis, but he's, he's over the moon. He's excited that Joseph and his family have been reunited, so much so that he says, the best that Egypt has to offer, give it to them. The best that we can, we can offer, give it to them. And then he even goes one step further and says, hey, my livestock, the, the, the stuff that brings me a ton of wealth, I want you to be over them. I want you to, to put my livestock in their care. He goes as far as trusting them with his own possessions. But this is something that we've seen from Pharaoh before. In Genesis 45, when he found out that Joseph and his family had been or that his brothers had been reunited and that Joseph was finally going to be face-to-face with his dad again, he says, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. He provides everything that they need to go back to Canaan to pack up all that they have, all of their possessions, and then basically relocate into Egypt but relocating in the best possible land, the best possible scenario. So we see God, even through Pharaoh, who was a pagan, who was by the Egyptian people seen as a God, God is using him and Joseph to provide for this incredible opportunity uh, and this incredible land to make them exceedingly fruitful. He gives them the best of the land. Now, here's the interesting part. Every single week, Ken and I have made sure that we put this book in context. And what I mean by that is we want to constantly go back to, okay, who was the original audience of this book? 
the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they were written for the Israelites as they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River and they're about to walk into the promised land. These are the people who were coming out of the Exodus. They would have had just the polar opposite view of Pharaoh. I mean, think about everything that they experienced versus what Jacob and his family's experiencing. They're leaving the what would have what would become the promised land, going into Egypt, and Pharaoh says, "Give them everything, give them the best, put them in charge of my livestock. We want to make sure that they are living in the best parts of Egypt." Yet, as we open the book of Exodus, we see, okay. Pharaoh in Exodus is a completely different person and treats Israel in a completely different way. Their experience, they would have been confused by this. Their experience was vastly different than what what the Israelites in Genesis are experiencing. At the beginning of Exodus, look at what uh, Pharaoh says uh, of, of the Lord. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh in Exodus dealt very, very harshly with the Israelites. So imagine being them and reading this story and being like, hold on, what, what is happening here? Why, why is Pharaoh treating them this way? And I think the reason is because I think Moses is trying to show them, hey, look, just like God is fulfilling the promise to give you this, this promised land, he fulfilled his promise to make you exceedingly fruitful in a land that is not yours, in a land that was foreign to you, even after you've experienced everything you've experienced, God laid the groundwork all the way back in the beginning of you being in Egypt, and he made you exceedingly fruitful and he multiplied you greatly. But then what would happen next would just take that confusion that the Israelites who would be reading this, uh, the confusion that they had, take it even further because look at what Jacob does. They're they're before Pharaoh and Joseph brings in Jacob. And as he's standing before Pharaoh, it says in verse seven that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now this would be very confusing again to them. They would be like, can you imagine? Can you imagine everything that they experienced? They're thinking, okay, as we left Egypt, we were chased by Pharaoh and his army. As we crossed the Red Sea, they were coming after us, trying to bring us back. Time and time again, they said, you can leave. Pharaoh said, you can leave. You can go worship your God. Time and time again, he reneged on that promise. And then he continued to pursue them, continued to oppress them. That's their idea of who Pharaoh is. And they're looking at a patriarch of the faith and seeing this guy is blessing Pharaoh. Why would he be doing that? And I think he's doing this because it's, it's really the Lord, it's God partially fulfilling his promise to his people. All the way back in Genesis 12, it says, I will make, God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think it's important there to focus on, I will bless those who bless you. In this moment, imagine Jacob, as we've seen uh, today, as we'll see as we end next week, Jacob's really old. He's, he's, you can imagine that he's kind of hunched over. He's not seen as a very strong person, somewhat uh, weak. And he's standing before 
the most influential man on the face of the earth, the guy who has the most power. And as we'll see here in a couple seconds, he's going to gain more wealth and prosperity than you could possibly imagine through what's going on in Egypt. And so if you look at this from a worldly perspective, it would seem that Jacob, who doesn't have a land that's his own, who, who, who is coming from sojourning, would be the lesser. But look at what is happening here. He's blessing someone, he's blessing Pharaoh, who is seen as a God. And because he is a man of God, because he's a follower of the Lord, really, even with all of his faults, he is the one who is is the stronger. He's the one who is using the blessings of God that he has received to bless others. I found this quote. It says, the least and most faltering of God's children has a superiority in the presence of the most elevated men of the world. Like I said earlier, think of Jacob's story. He's made some bad decisions time and time again, yet even through that, he understands that God has redeemed him. He understands that he's following a God who is faithful to his promises that will provide for them. And he understands that even standing before the most powerful man in the world, he is standing and and is backed by the Lord. He's a man of God. He understood that even though he's made bad decisions, even in his weakness, he he is made strong through the Lord. And blessing Pharaoh was partially blessing the earth through his family. Remember, Genesis 12 says, I will bless those who bless you. So when Pharaoh is, when Jacob blesses Pharaoh, we're going to see not only does Israel just continue to become fruitful, right? Because Pharaoh gave them, really blessed them with the best land in Egypt, the best that Egypt has to offer. And we see that blessing come and God say, I will bless those who bless you. And as we'll see here in a second, Egypt itself is about to become incredibly prosperous. So we have all this happen, and Joseph finally settles his family in the land of Goshen. He sets them up with, okay, here's, you're going to be over uh, Pharaoh's livestock. You're going to have the best land. Everything is going to go well. You're going to be in the best land, the land of Ramses, which is the area uh, surrounding Goshen. All of this Pharaoh commanded. In verse 12, it says, Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Joseph is going to continue to provide for his family. And what this is doing is it's God, man, going all the way to Genesis 50, where Joseph says, what what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Not only is Joseph and his leadership providing for the nation of Egypt, he in this position right now is there to also provide for his family and brings them into the best of the land. At this moment, Israel was becoming a great nation. This is the groundwork, the beginning of them becoming incredibly fruitful. And they're finally given this this permanent possession. They're given this land in Egypt. And remember, this is during a massive famine, a famine that even for, it reached all the way up to the land of Canaan and they were coming down to Egypt because they had no food. They had nothing. This was a a widespread famine, and at this moment, God has placed them in the best land that Egypt has to offer. It's during a great famine, and God's blessing his people. But like I said, Egypt and Pharaoh, they are also prospering in this moment because of Joseph's leadership. What I love about this story is it just doesn't end here. 
the story of Joseph and everything that we've seen from Genesis 37 to now is the ups and downs of Joseph's life. And it's easy to think, okay, once Jacob and his family finally get to Egypt, all right, that part of Joseph's life is over. But no, Joseph continues to do his job. And remember, the famine still has about five years or so that's going, where it's going to wreak havoc uh, on, on everywhere around them. So Joseph is continuing to do his job, and we know this is a job that God had called him to. So under the leadership of Joseph, we see Egypt in this really hard and difficult time actually become pretty prosperous, especially Pharaoh. And their prosperity comes in many ways. And there's, this section kind of spends time on that. The, the, the Egyptians come to Pharaoh and say, hey, we are out of uh, food. We, we need grain. We know you have it. You have your storehouses of grain. We will give you all of our money in exchange for food. That's exactly what happens. It says Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt. And what's crazy about this, it doesn't say some of the money. It doesn't say a little bit of the money. It says, no, Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. And he brings it in to Pharaoh's house. And so obviously Pharaoh has become exceedingly wealthy at this point. And then a little bit of time goes by and the Egyptians, they all come back and they say, hey, we don't have any money, but we do have land. So if we sell you our land, it can be Pharaoh's in exchange for food. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. So Egypt as a nation, Pharaoh specifically, they have a ton of money now, and then, then they have all of the land of Egypt. So got the money, they've got the land, and then finally they come back and they say, hey, look, we don't have any money, we don't have you know, any land, but we have ourselves and our livestock. We will give ourselves to serve you in exchange for grain, in exchange for food. So this is exactly what happens. In verse 21, it says, for the people he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And in this, in this moment, we're seeing the, the really kind of the nation of Egypt come together and say, hey, this is a difficult time. We are dealing with a great famine. We're willing to sacrifice these things so that we might be able to eat, might be able to provide for our families. And so we see the ability for this to happen. I mean, this is a lot of people coming constantly asking for food, constantly asking for grain. And the only reason Joseph can provide this is because God has given him, given him the wisdom years before to start storing up food, knowing there's going to be seven years of prosperity and this, these seven years of a famine. And so he has been able to store all of this up and provide not only for his family in the land of Goshen, but also for the nation of Egypt. And it's just amazing that uh, Joseph continues to do this job even after everything that's happened with his family. And what's amazing here is this is all in God's sovereign plan. God had Joseph here specifically in this moment for exactly the reason of this, uh, to provide for Egypt, to provide for his family. And he himself even understands this. In Genesis 50, he says, talking to his family, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Not just his family. Yes, he is, he's in this position and because of his position, he's been able to provide for his family, give them the land of Goshen, make them exceedingly wealthy because as we'll see here in Genesis that they actually kind of bought up some of the land around them as well. 
So not only is providing for his family in a great famine, he's also providing for the entire nation of Egypt. God put him here, as he says himself, so that many people should be kept alive. In the wisdom of his leadership, we see that coming to fruition. So all of this happens, and we see that Israel's finally settled in the land of Goshen, and it shows us here the beginnings of the promise to make them fruitful. And they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly in the land of Goshen. So while the Egyptians were handing everything over to Pharaoh, handing everything over to to, uh, Joseph, Israel was continuing to enjoy the blessings of God in the land of Goshen. They had wealth, they had land, they had livestock. They had been given the best land. They had been given Pharaoh's livestock. They had been trusted by Pharaoh to take care of his possessions and they were growing to be exceedingly fruitful. This is God fulfilling his promises. Now, they might not have necessarily expected it to be in this way. They thought most likely that to be fruitful, it would be in the promised land. I think it's easy for me to read this and think, okay, they were fruitful and they multiplied in the promised land. But no, it's, it's starting right here in Egypt that God was fulfilling the promise that he had made to them. All the way back in Genesis 35, it says, God speaking to Jacob, reiterating the promise that he had made to Abraham and Isaac. And he said, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. This is the command that he gives them. And we see in the land of Goshen that God fulfills this promise. You see, Jacob didn't realize that this promise would take place in Egypt rather than Canaan. And if you think about it, Jacob, his sons, everybody that came from Canaan to Egypt, none of them, including Joseph, would ever set foot again in the land of Canaan. They wouldn't go back in to the promised land, yet they still believed and trusted in the promise of God because they had seen time and time again God fulfill his promises before. God had not failed them yet, nor would he ever. So they trusted that even if I'm not going to be the one that sees Israel in the promised land, I can trust that God will fulfill that promise. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Even if he knows that that's that's true for him, that he won't necessarily see the promised land as their own, he is seeing the blessings of God all around him. He's been reunited with his son who he thought he'd never see again. Israel is multiplying at a rapid rate. They're growing super fast. And as we open Exodus, like I said, they're in the millions. And then they're living in a land that was provided by God. God, time and time again, was not only providing for them, but he's saying, look, the promises that I've made to you, I will fulfill. I am faithful in my promises. So Jacob, knowing this, seeing that he is is taking part in the blessings of God, but also the promises of God being fulfilled in Goshen, hadn't forgotten about the promise to provide the land of Canaan, but he himself knew that this was just a step in the journey towards God's fulfillment of that promise. Remember, we talked about how God told Abraham, there's going to be a time where you are in a land that is not your own. You're going to be in a foreign land for, and being afflicted for 400 years. But the promise still remains from Genesis 17 that I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
This is something that is in Jacob's mind over and over and over and over again. He knows that he won't necessarily be the one that sets foot in the land of Canaan and won't set foot in the promised land that God is going to give them. But because he has seen God be faithful to his promises, he can take the words of God from this book, the the words of God, the promise that he's given to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, and he knows that God will fulfill this promise. He can put his trust in that. So as we get to Genesis 48, we're going to see that Jacob, knowing this, knowing that he's not going to be the one that goes back into Canaan, he, he's, he's getting really old. He, he understands that he's at the end of his life. He needs to, and he wants to pass on this blessing, pass on this promise that has been given to Abraham, been given to Isaac, was given to Jacob. He wants to pass it off to the next generation. So he calls Joseph before him with Joseph's two sons. And as they're standing before him, Jacob says this, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. So Jacob himself knew, God said, I will make you fruitful and he's seeing it happen here. I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. So he adopts uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So Jacob standing before uh, Joseph and his two sons adopts Joseph's sons into his family and talks about how God had shown him what the promise was, has given him this promise. And as, as we remember, God's appeared to Jacob twice, or spoken to Jacob twice. You, you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the dream he had where he sees the ladder up into heaven and uh, angels walking up and down, going between heaven and earth. But then also he wrestled with God. And we see in this moment that he's reiterating the promise that had been given to every single patriarch before him in the generations from Abraham. The blessing, the, the promise that Abraham received, Isaac received, and Jacob received, he is now passing on. So why, why is he bringing this up? He understands that he is, this is where his life will end in Egypt. He understands that he's old. He understands that he doesn't have much time left and that his time is coming to an end. So he wants to pass off this blessing. He wants to pass down, reiterate this, this blessing and this promise to the next generation, to his descendants. So knowing this, Joseph comes in, sets his sons before his father, Jacob. Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim would be the younger. Manasseh would be the older. And so this, what, this verses I'm about to read might seem a little confusing and just it gets a little repetitive, but just bear with me for a second. In verse 13, it says, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his, left, or Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand. And, brought them, and he brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. Now it's important to realize here that in this moment, Ephraim is the younger, Manasseh is the older. Joseph very intentionally sets the older son in front of the right hand, the younger son in front of the left hand. 
He's doing this because the right hand would be the hand that, Joseph, that Jacob would use to give out the firstborn blessing, the, the, the privileged firstborn, and then it would be greater than the secondborn. So Joseph is very intentional in how he sets his sons in front of Joseph, or Jacob. But then, as we see here at the end, Jacob crosses his hands, puts his right hand on Ephraim and puts his left hand on Manasseh. And this is intentional. This, this is something that it's not a mistake of, you know, bad eyesight, old age, Jacob being uh, a little out of it. No, he's doing this on purpose and he's doing it under divine inspiration. This is an act of faith. Jacob gave Ephraim the privilege of the firstborn blessing rather than Manasseh. Now Manasseh still receives a blessing, but it is Ephraim who receives the, the bigger blessing, the, the firstborn blessing. And what I love about this is this is now the fourth generation that this has happened in this family. Isaac over Ishmael, you see, well, you see Jacob really kind of deceive Isaac, but still Jacob receives the firstborn blessing, the privileged blessing over Esau. We saw it Joseph over Reuben, and now we're seeing Ephraim over Manasseh. This is now the fourth generation in a row where the younger has received the firstborn blessing rather than the older. But this isn't a mistake. Like we've said time and time again in the story that none of these things that happen are a surprise to God. This is all according to his will. We know this specifically because in Hebrews 11, that great uh, hall of faith passage where we see just amazing men of God in in what they've done in their faith uh, in Hebrews 11, Jacob is mentioned. And what's mentioned of him is this story right here. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He was doing this on purpose. It doesn't say here that he, you know, he messed up the blessing. He says, no, he was blessing the sons of Joseph the way that he was for a specific reason. He was doing this by faith. Jacob might not necessarily have known exactly why God wanted it to happen this way, but by faith, he was giving Ephraim, the younger son, the firstborn blessing over Manasseh. And this is just, again, what I love about this is it's God using the younger, God using the one who would have not necessarily been seen as the most powerful, the the strongest in the family, the firstborn. He's using the younger to accomplish his will. Now, you can imagine Joseph wouldn't love this situation. He, 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 was, he would see his father doing this. And remember, in, earlier in this passage, it says that he was uh, bowed over. He, he would not have necessarily seen his father cross his hands until he looked up and saw his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. So he tries to intervene. He says, look, Father, no, you need to do this. Place this hand on this son and this hand on this son. But then Jacob says, uh, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Jacob's decision was deliberate. Jacob's decision was one that he, he chose to do this by faith. And God, as we see throughout the Old Testament, will fulfill the promise that Jacob makes here. He fulfills the promise to make both of them 
into great nations, but Ephraim would be greater as we see in the promise here. Ephraim actually, if you follow through uh, biblical history, Ephraim will become the name of, or really most associated with the Northern tribe. Later on in the history of Israel, the uh, Israel is gonna split into two in the, the Northern tribe and the Southern tribe. And the Northern tribe most is, the name associated with the Northern tribe is Ephraim. Yeah, he, he multiplies them greatly. He, he makes them exceedingly fruitful. And God is again proven that he is faithful to his promises. And the thing that I just keep going back to in this lesson as I think through, okay, God is, is faithful to his promises. He might not necessarily fulfill these promises in the way that we would expect, but he is still faithful is, okay, what does that mean for us? How, how is that helpful for us? How is it helpful for us to look at Genesis 46 through 48, see God answer these promises, fulfill these promises? What does that mean for us today? Well, I see all throughout the Old Testament that we were given the promise of a savior, given the promise of a Messiah, and all of these promises, or really the promise of salvation were fulfilled through Christ. I love this passage uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen ascends to God for his glory. Guys, I think this, these chapters are here to show us that even when we don't expect it, even if it's not how we expect it, we serve a God who is faithful to his promises. We serve a God who provides for us a God who has never failed, will never fail, and time and time again has promised us. And on your table, there's an article that talks about all the promises of God and how he has fulfilled all of these. We serve a God who's faithful to his promises, and that's something that we can have confidence in. That's something that we can put our faith and our trust in to leave this room knowing that and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So here are your questions for today. Genesis has repeatedly shown how God is faithful to keep all his promises. Why should that provide us with greater confidence today? Second, which promises of God resonate with you the most and why? That's what that article is there for. This isn't every single promise of God, but it's front and back of promises in the Old Testament, promises in the New Testament. Read over those and it's, I think it's important for us to look at the promises of God, see how he's fulfilled them, and I want you to see which one resonates with you the most and why. And lastly, how has the Lord provided for you in unexpected ways? The Israelites would not have expected to become fruitful and multiply greatly in Egypt. That's not what they would have expected. They would have thought that this would happen in the land of Canaan, yet we see God fulfilling his promise to do that in Egypt. How has something like that, how has God provided for you in unexpected ways? Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for today and for just giving us your promises. Lord, for time and time again, showing us that you are faithful to your word, you're faithful to your promises. And Lord, I pray that that would just give us a greater confidence um, in who you are. It would allow us to place our trust, our faith, and our hope in you way, way more often than we actually do. Lord, I pray that we would cling to those promises knowing that you are faithful to them. Lord, be with us at our time with the tables this morning. And God, just be in our conversation 